Well, good morning, Chili Bible. Happy New Year to y'all. Just a couple of quick announcements I would like to make. Uh, First of all, uh, you are probably witnessing one of the very last times that we will pass the plate here at Chillicothe Bible Church. Uh, We're hoping that effective February 1st, we will no longer do that. Uh, Not because we don't still need people to give. Uh, but because we're going to try it in some other methods, um, you know, we'll have these we'll have these giving boxes here. There's one out by the back. Uh, Eric is also in the process of setting up online giving and also giving via text message. So if you are the kind of person who likes to be able to utilize technology, you'll be able to do that. Uh, you'll be able to. Um, uh, Give via your your checking account, via uh, you know automatic withdrawal. You'll be able to uh, uh, go online and um, and enter in either your credit card or your debit card um, and give uh, on a, either a recurring basis or a one-time thing or whatever you want to do. Uh, and it's very slick, from what I understand how it works. It's very easy. Uh, it's simple enough that even this technically retarded person can make it happen. So, um, in any case, um, that will be done um, very, very soon. And, uh, in fact, I think we may have information on that as soon as next week uh, in terms of how to be able to do that. Um, the only thing we're trying to figure out is the accounting side of it. Um, you know, the, the, the software side is already done. Uh, but before we give you all of that information, we want to make sure that the uh, the accounting side works uh, appropriately so we can track it all uh, and all of that kind of thing. The other thing I would like to tell you is uh, if you are brand new to Chillicothe Bible Church, and by that I mean if you have come for the first time within the last year and you would like to have the opportunity to get to know uh, some things about the church, or get to know Karen and I better, uh, or um, you would just like an opportunity to ask questions. Uh, the Explorers Sunday School class uh, is for you. We are going to delay the start of that. Uh, we delayed that this week because of the blizzard, as they say. And uh, uh, some of our folks who were planning to attend did not make it because of the ice and so forth. But we'll start that next week, and there's, so it's not too late to jump in. Also, we have several other Sunday school options that are exciting and in which you will learn a lot. We've got our men's fraternity group on Sunday morning that's ongoing, There's, I think, in the last five weeks of that. Uh, uh, Kenton Bergman is teaching a tremendous class on Jonah, which if you've not uh, ever studied Jonah in serious depth, this would be a good class for you to jump into. You will learn a lot. And then also the, uh, the ladies have a class taught by Donna Hubler that's all about heaven and what it's like uh, to be in heaven according to the scriptures. So encourage you to take advantage of each of those options. Last thing I want to say is the weather. Um, don't take your life in your hands to get here. We have, uh, we have closed twice in my seven years here. Um, that we may close again, hopefully not. Um, but be be aware of road conditions and so forth. Don't put yourself at risk to get here. Uh, the Lord knows your heart if you don't make it, all right? Um, but 
be sure to check the TV stations, uh, also the church Facebook page. Uh, we'll have current information either through either through one of one or probably multiple of those options. Okay, just be aware of that. Now, this year is a new year, as you know. It's a perfect time to look back at the past and and learn from it. It's also a good time to look forward to the future with great hope. It's a time for renewing some old commitments and maybe making some new ones. And I'll bet that some of you have made some resolutions. Raise your hand if you've made a New Year's resolution. Come on now. Be proud. All right, just a few of you. All right. Some of you have probably thought, you know, uh, maybe by this time next year I'd like to fit into smaller pants. Uh, some of you have thought, well, maybe this is the year I will finally change jobs and I will get out of this uh, job that I'm in and I will get into something that really fits my passion and that is less like a job and more like a joy. You know, there's a lot of difference between the, the, those two words, even though there's only one letter in between them, right? And and so maybe this is the year I'm going to do that. I'm going to make the jump and get out of uh, something that feels like another day at the salt mine, and I'm going to get into something I'm excited about and passionate about. Uh, others probably thought about the fact that, you know, my kids are not getting any younger, and I'm not getting any younger either. And I need to make sure I'm investing in them and discipling them and, and building into their lives. Or maybe it's your, at this point, your grandchildren, you have made a determination you need to make some lasting memories with them. And I don't want to belittle resolution making. I actually think that it's good to kind of look back over the past and try to learn some lessons and look toward the future and, and hopefully uh, make some determinations about, about where you want to go in the future and what you want to see God do. But I hope that in the process of thinking about that, and thinking about, hey, it's a new year, and I have a new opportunity ahead of me. In a sense, a clean slate going forward. That you will have a desire to make 2015 a year of spiritual growth. And that you will have a desire to draw nearer to God than perhaps you ever have before. Because while all these other things are good, and I could certainly use smaller pants... And, uh, and, and more time with my kids and all those kinds of things. Um, if you miss out on this one, if you miss out on this one, of drawing near to God and seeing Him in all His glory, can I submit to you that you have missed the point of human life? That the, that the entire reason that we are here is to draw near to God and to see Him in His glory and to walk with Him by faith and to see Him transform our hearts and our lives. And if we're not excited about that, that we are missing out on the very most important thing in life. And all other things are secondary to that one goal at best. Now, it's been a few weeks since we were in Exodus last. And, you you know, I, I know that most of us can't remember what we wore yesterday. We know we were clothed, but what it was, we're not entirely sure, right? So I know it's been a few weeks since we were next to this. So let me bring us back up to speed in terms of where we're going to be. Um, 
When we last left Moses, uh, chapter 33, he was up on the mountain again, and he was interceding with God. And the reason that he was is because chapter 32 of Exodus, the Israelites, while Moses is up on the mountain getting all these instructions for how to build the tabernacle and how to, how to put it all together and how God is going to live with them as their God and they're going to be his people and he's going to have his tent in the middle of their camp and so forth. While all of that's going on, Aaron, his brother, who's so faithful, is down at the bottom making a golden calf idol for all the people to engage in immorality and idolatry with. Great. Okay, so he comes down and he finds all of this going on. He breaks the tablets that God had, had made and engraved with his own finger the, the words of the Ten Commandments because God's covenant with his people is broken. But They've broken uh, three, at least, of the Ten Commandments, including the very first two. You're to have no other gods and you're not to make a graven image of anything. And they've done both of those and now they're engaged in all kinds of immorality involving uh, the worship of this idol. And 3,000 people are struck dead that day. And God sends a plague through the whole nation in judgment on them. And chapter 33 is Moses pleading with God because he has told them, he's told Moses, look, I'm going to keep my commitment to bring you into the land, but I'm not going to go with you. I'll send an angel, but I'm not going to go with you, and I'm not going to live among you, because if I live among you, I and my holiness might destroy you, and you might all be struck dead on the way, because the wickedness of your hearts is so pervasive that you cannot dwell in my presence. And Moses pleads with God. And he says, God, if you're not going with us, then we're not going. Because if we could receive all of the blessings that you have for us, but not have you, then it's not worth because I don't want to go into the promised land unless you're going to go with us. I don't want all of your blessings and not have the blesser. I don't want the gifts without the giver. And God says, all right, Moses, I'll go with you. And he makes this request. It's a bold request. He says, God, I want you to see, I want to see all of your glory. I want to see you in all of your glory revealed. I want to see you as no one else has ever seen you. I want to see it. And God says, Moses, it's a good request, but you can't handle it. If you see me in all of my glory, you will be struck dead. Because even though you are the mediator between God's people and me, you can, you're still a sinner. You cannot handle it. So I'm going to stick you in a hole and cover you with my hand. And then when I pass by, and you can, you can just see the afterglow of me passing by. And that'll have to be good enough. He says, but get up early in the morning and come see me. So that brings us up to chapter 34. We're going to look at nine verses today. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets 
the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in, in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he arose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. Now I find these four verses completely fascinating because what God is doing in these four verses is he is reestablishing his covenant with Israel. He is resetting the limits of his covenant and redoing the same process with which it was originally given. You may remember chapter 19. I don't know, that's a long way back. But back in chapter 19, when God was originally going to give the Ten Commandments to the people, He said this. He said, set a boundary around the mountain and don't let anybody come near it and don't let anybody go up on it and don't let any animals graze on it. And then I'm going to come down and give you the Ten Commandments. Well, God is going to redo, in a sense, that whole process with them. And so he says, okay, we're going to reset the boundaries. And on top of that, this is a new commandment, he says, don't even let somebody graze on the mountain across from the mountain I'm going to be on. Which I think is interesting. In other words, you can't, this is a private meeting between me and Moses. And so you can't you know, be one of those enterprising guys that wants to get up on another mountain and look over and see. All right? There's no, one, no eavesdropping allowed. You can't do that. Uh, and, and you'll notice that just like the first, ti- just like the first time, um, there's going to be some stone tablets. But different from the first time, the first time God provides the tablets and God is the one who writes his commands. But this time, he says, Moses, you cut out some tablets. You broke the set originally. And so you cut out a new set, and you come up the mountain, and you come see me. Um, and, and the responsibility is put on Moses. And notice how Moses responds. He cuts the tablets, and the text says he gets up early the next morning to go to his meeting with the Lord. Now, some people seeing that conclude that we ought to apply that by saying, okay, when you are going to meet with God, you need to get up early. Now, I, happen to don't, I don't happen to believe that. I think God made all kinds of birds besides the meadowlarks. And if you are one of those other kinds, maybe you're a, an, an owl, uh, there's nothing wrong with serving God according to your bents and according to the way he has made you. But what I do think is important to notice in the fact that he got up early is that Moses didn't delay to obey God. He didn't think that his meeting with God was just one more thing on his to-do list, things I've got to accomplish uh, tomorrow morning. And I think that is a good word for us. Moses was a guy with a lot of responsibility. And he had a million and some people that were relying on him. In fact, he had so much responsibility, if you remember, he had to delegate a whole bunch of it out to, to what would have been hundreds of other people that he's overseeing. 
and all of these people report up to him. So I imagine at first thing in the morning, there's probably a line of people at his tent. Hey, Moses, uh, we got some stuff to talk about. And Moses, Moses gets up early to go meet with the Lord. Y'all handle it. I got priority. And the most important thing in Moses' life that he he demonstrates this and how he how he reacts is to go meet with the Lord. And I think there's a lesson for us in that because all of us have a long list of responsibilities, right? We've got people to meet with. We've got kids to get out the door. We've got uh, we've got companies to run and uh, and bills to pay, places to go, and people to see, and things to do, and cars to fix, and a dishwasher that doesn't work, and a and a garage door that won't open, and all those kinds of things, right? All that kind of stuff goes into our life. And we have this long list of stuff. But we dare not treat God in our meeting with Him like it's just one more thing on the to-do list. And we ought not, I don't think, delay doing that. I have a good friend um, who um, who's a guy I discipled years ago, and he has a simple rule. No Bible, no breakfast. Right? And every morning, Trevor has got his Bible open. And he's in the Word. And he's, he, his attitude is, Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And it's a good word. Good word for me. Because believe it or not, I can get swept up in that whole thing too. Of I got stuff to do. I got meetings to have, etc. But the one thing that's most important First thing, I got to go see the Lord. I got to meet with Him. And these next three verses are, I think, some of the most exciting verses in the entire Old Testament. Uh, these next three verses are, in fact, quoted or alluded to dozens of times throughout the Old Testament. And and what you see in these three verses is the revelation of God's glory and God's greatness. And if you've ever wanted to know what is God really like, these three verses are God's explanation and God's revelation to us of what He's really like. So I want to read them with you. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before Him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, I got a, I got a confession to make. When I first read these verses, very first time I'd ever read them, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reading along, and Moses says, I want to see your glory, Lord. I want to see your glory. And God says, come up in the morning, and I'll show it to you. And so I'm reading along, and I get to this, and, and, and God passes by, and God comes down on the mountain, and I'm thinking, oh, I get to see what Moses saw. I want to know 
what God looked like. And if you are reading the text and you're expecting that that's what you're going to see, you're going to be very disappointed. Because there are no descriptions of what Moses saw. It just says, the Lord came down and stood before Moses, and he passed by and revealed his glory. And I had to scratch my head. I was like, what? That's not what I was expecting. But here's what I realized as I kept reading, and as I came to understand, it's not God's purpose to reveal to us his visible form. In fact, if you read the descriptions of Jesus in the Gospels, one thing that you will notice is that his physical appearance is never described. Isn't that interesting? I mean, we don't even find out his hair color or how tall he was or whether he had hair. You don't find any of that out. You know why? Because what is important to know about God is not the outward appearance. What is important to know about God and the glorious thing that God wants us to understand about Him is His inner character. Not what, his, not what He looks like on the outside, but who He is on the inside. Because God doesn't want us to make images of Him that look like Him and bow down before that. He wants us to understand who He is and how He acts in salvation toward us. And as we understand that, then we see the greatness and glory of God. That the greatness and glory of God is not the parts that you can see, although I am sure one day we will stand before God and we will gaze upon the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That will happen. But that's not the big deal. The big deal is seeing the character of God revealed in salvation toward His people, toward you and me, toward Moses, toward the people of Israel. And so God gives us seven attributes. In fact, God preaches a sermon about Himself. Would that I could be this succinct. Right? Some of you say, Amen. All right. Uh, But God preaches a sermon about Himself, and He says, if you want to see the greatness and glory and grandeur and majesty of God, then understand this about me and who I am. And He gives seven things about Himself, and His sermon begins with His name. He says, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh. Okay? Is how the text reads in Hebrew. And it's his announcement of his name. Because in, in Hebrew thinking, your name conveys your character. Just like Jacob means he who grabs the heel. He who tries to get an advantage for himself. And that's Jacob's life. His whole life is trying to get over on somebody else. Right? His name reveals his character. And in the same way, God's name reveals His character. And His name means the one who is, the great I Am. The eternally existent God. 
But this particular name is used in context with the nation of Israel. It's God's salvation name, if you will. It's the name by which God spoke to Moses out of the bush. It's the name by which God said to His people, Israel, I am the Lord, and I will deliver you out of Egypt, and I will take you across the the Red Sea on dry ground, and I will bring you into the promised land. I, the Lord, will do these things. And He repeats it twice so that you don't miss that the great I Am is speaking. That His redemption name, His salvation name is the one you should know me by. And then he says, he says, let me explain what my name means. And he gives seven characteristics. He starts with this one, that he is merciful. Mercy means, very simply, not getting what you do deserve. Not getting what you have earned. In other words, you have earned punishment. You have earned condemnation, but instead of that, you don't get it. And then the second characteristic, and and the first six of these are in pairs. The second characteristic is its twin sister, which uh, in the text here reads, gracious. Gracious. Your your Bible may read compassionate. It's the same word. But it's it's the flip side. It's the twin sister of mercy. They're two sides of the same coin. Uh, Mercy means I don't get what I do deserve. And grace means I receive what I haven't earned and could not work for. Okay, so in other words, to to put it in terms we can all understand, I deserve punishment and I don't get it. And I don't deserve to be adopted into God's family and called His child, but that's precisely what God gives me. That I don't deserve salvation, but I receive it. God is merciful and He is gracious. He withholds judgment from us and gives us benefits as His people. He is merciful and He is gracious. And... He doesn't just set us free from prison. He brings us into His mansion as His kids to live. Can you imagine? Those are the first two characteristics. The third is that He is slow to anger. Uh, If you have an older translation, it probably reads something like long-suffering. It's the idea that God has a long fuse. That he does not just lash out in frustration. God's justice is just the opposite of ours. You know, I, we used to laugh at my mother. We we would we tore we were awful. Our, my sisters and I, my brother and I, we were awful. Okay, when you see my mother, you should give her a hug. <laughs> All right, she comes every now and then, and you see her, give her a hug, because she has earned it. <laughs> putting up with us four aliens. We were awful. But we would push my mother and push my mother and push my mother. And she would say things like this. I am so mad right now, I can just spit. Okay. Now, she is a lady. She never spat at anything in her life. Right? But we would laugh. 
We thought that was the funniest thing, okay? But she, we would push her until she had just snapped, you know, and just like ready to grab a broom and start beating us, right? And we deserved it. But God's patience is not like that. He is long-suffering. He doesn't get to a point where he just snaps. All right, I've had it! I'm going to kill you all! You know, I mean, he doesn't do that. Okay, God's patience is long. And when he chooses to judge, it's as a result of deliberate action and reflection. Remember, the the longest-lived guy in the Bible is Methuselah. 969 years, right? And that's important because his name in Hebrew means when he dies, judgment. Now, the flood comes in the same year that Methuselah died. But his parents knew because God had told them that when this boy dies, judgment will come. A thousand years went by, and then judgment fell. What does that tell you about God? Peter picks up the same idea. 2 Peter uh, 3.9, he says, God is not slow in keeping His promises, as some count slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. In other words, God is the reason he hasn't wrapped up this whole mess down here is not because he is senile or has just forgotten or is just, you know, somehow wasting time up there in heaven. Because he is patient and he desires repentance and he wants to give as long a rope as he can until it is clear that that people will no longer repent and then judgment will come. He's long. He is slow to anger. Now, fourth and fifth, these two pairs are uh, God's love and His faithfulness. Now, the Hebrew word for love is this marvelous word. It's the word hesed. Uh, It's the word that's hard to translate, actually, into English. But it's the kind of love that God demonstrates when He saves people. One that doesn't give up on His covenant or break His covenant, uh, even though we break it. It's usually translated something like steadfast love. And it's a great word. It's the word that that God uses when he says, though you abandon me, I will not abandon you. My steadfast love will be there. And the other word is the word faithfulness. In Hebrew, it's the word for truth or truthfulness. uh, The word emet. In other words, That when God makes a promise, He is faithful, He is true, He keeps it. You can take His word to the bank that no matter what happens, He's going to be faithful. He's going to keep His promise. That His steadfast love and His faithfulness are going to hold no matter what. No matter what you do, God loves you with an everlasting His word and His promises are true. And on top of that, the text says that he that, that this is not something He just has kind of in a small quantity. It says He is abounding in steadfast love. 
love and faithfulness. In other words, it's overflowing. There's a lot of it. That quality of God abounds and, and exceeds what we expect. And the beginning of verse 7, if you look at the text there, repeats God's hesed, his steadfast love, and says that he offers steadfast love to thousands. In other words, the idea is is that God's love and faithfulness is not something that's just narrow and just focused on just a tiny little group over here. That it's there's a wideness to God's mercy that that God loved the entire world. Amen. And his love is abundant, not just in the quantity, but in the extent to which it goes out. And the next one that we see is God's forgiveness. When God saves us, he does not count our sin against us. He releases us. Are you ready for this? He releases us from not just the penalty of sin, which is death and hell. He releases us from the power of sin over us so that we don't have to sin anymore. And one day He will free us also from the presence of sin. In other words, we won't even have a sin nature anymore or the capability to sin. All those things are encompassed in God's forgiveness. That freedom from sin's penalty, freedom from sin's power, freedom from sin's presence is all wrapped up in God's forgiveness. That He removes our sin from us as far as east is from the west. Amen? That, that our sins are buried in the depths of the ocean. You know, you've got to get into like a submersible, one of these special high-pressure submarines to go down and see something like the Titanic way down there where it's completely dark all the time, right? That's the kind of place that God buries our sin. Some place that you cannot get to. It is completely separated from us because of God's forgiveness. And on top of that, the text says He forgives all kinds of sin. He forgives he forgives iniquity, which has this idea of the turning away from the right path. Maybe not deliberately, but nevertheless, you turned away from going the right direction and are now going the wrong direction. He forgives more serious sin than that, which is the word transgression, or your Bible may read rebellion, which is more of the shake your fist at God and tell him off kind of sin. I know that God says do this, but I'm going to do it my way. Rebellion, transgression. God forgives that kind of sin. And then the last one, it says sin. is just kind of a theological junk drawer category, if you will. Okay, For in case we left out any other kind, God forgives that too. He forgives unintentional sin. He forgives fully intentional sin, deliberate rebellion, and He forgives every other kind of sin also. His forgiveness extends to the complete depth of our need and beyond it. These things are part of the greatness and grandeur and glory of God. And if we're going to see God rightly, 
and see Him in all of His glory. We need to see all of these things that He is and how He is in relationship with us. Amen? And then there's one more. This is no one's favorite. And you, but you can't have these first six without the last one. And it's that God is just. He will by no means clear the guilty, but visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And this seventh one is the most difficult attribute for a lot of us to get our arms around. We like all the previous six. We go, yeah, 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 mm -mm. you know, mercy, compassion, grace, faithfulness, steadfast love, love it, eat it up with a big spoon, yes, put whipped cream on that, right? And then we come to this one and we go, ooh, ooh. this one goes down a little hard. But, you know, C.S. Lewis has a good word on this one. He says, mercy detached from justice grows unmerciful. Right. That is an important paradox. There are plants which flourish only in mountain soil, so it appears that mercy will only flower when it grows in the crannies of justice. That unless justice is done at some point, then mercy can't really be done. He's exactly right about that. Because we don't simply, we don't have a grandfather in heaven. Amen? We don't have this kind of senile benevolence up there in heaven who just loves everybody and just wants everybody to have a good time. And it really doesn't matter what you do. It does matter. We have a father in heaven who brings judgment and discipline, and even punishment on the wicked. Amen? God says, I'm that too. And, and I think that when he's talking about the third and the fourth generation, I think he's talking about how the consequences of sin can sometimes be long-lasting. And that God has set up a moral universe such that the consequences of sin do not simply affect the person who sins. That they affect other people as well. And in fact, the reason the world is the way it is is because of sin. In fact, G.K. Chesterton famously won a, an essay contest put on by the, the Times of London back in the early 1900s. They had a, an essay contest write the best answer to this question, what is wrong with the world? Chesterton won. And he wrote back with two words, I am. And he's precisely right. You want to know what's wrong with the world? Look in the mirror. Because it is you and your sin that makes the world the way it is. And that's true for every single person. That sin has not just personal effects, it has cosmic effects. That the creation is fallen because we are fallen. And our society is fallen because we are fallen. And International relationships are fallen because we are fallen. And marriages break up because we are fallen. And kids rebel because they are fallen. Etc. And God's justice ensures that sin is dealt with ultimately. 
And when Moses hears this, look what he does. Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. The one who, who longed to see God in all of his glory, when it's revealed to him, he can't look at it very long. He bows his head and prays. He looks away as soon as he sees because he is overcome with the desire to give glory to and worship God. And he therefore prays in accordance with the character and promises of God that he has just come to understand and to and he asked God to keep his promise to go with them. He asked God to forgive them according to his merciful, holy love. And to claim them for his inheritance according to his loving covenant promises. And that, by the way, is precisely what God did. Precisely what he did. He claimed them for his own and he forgave them. And he went before them and dwelt in the midst of them. Because he is that kind of God who judges justly but loves extravagantly. And it's a new year, and there is no better time than right now to renew your relationship with God. Amen. I don't know what the past has been like, and and in the truest sense, it does not matter. Do you know why it doesn't? Because we have a God who is gracious and merciful passionate, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, who forgives iniquity, rebellion, and sin, and who judges justly, and who loves you, who desires for you to draw near to Him. But if you're going to do that, can I suggest to you that this passage outlines some real practical steps for you to get there. Number one, Quickly obey his call to worship. God calls to us throughout his word. Come to me. Come to me. Come to me. Jesus says it this way. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come and worship. Come to me. and Receive what your soul earnestly seeks and so tomorrow morning, when the alarm goes off, what are you going to do? Come to worship God quickly. First thing, don't delay. Come to the mountain. Seek the Lord. Number two, humbly bow before His holy character. If you get nothing else out of this message, and you I've done my best, okay? But if you get nothing else out of this text, get this. Get God's character revealed in His salvation toward you. And what kind of God He is and see the greatness and glory and grandeur and majesty of the living I Am who brings salvation. Because that is the glory of God revealed. 
those verses 5 through 7 reveal the glory of God more succinctly than anywhere else in your Bible. And that's why they're quoted dozens of times. So that people will remember and, and lift their eyes and see the glory of God and then bow before Him. And then last, worshipfully pray according to His promises and His perfection. In other words, according to what He has told you in His Word and according to the character He reveals there. And I think what happens is this, is that meeting and knowing, and knowing God is a cycle. And that as you meet with God and you pray and you talk with Him and you understand more and more about Him, then you have to pray and seek the Lord and know more of Him. And then as you know more of Him, you can't help yourself, but you have to pray and seek the Lord again. And then as you're seeking the Lord and knowing more and more and more about Him, you go, oh my gosh, I'm overwhelmed with the desire to worship. And so you pray. And then you come to understand a little more about Him, and then you have to worship some more. And it's, and it's supposed to go in a cycle like that deeper and deeper into relationship with God. As you understand more of who He is and what He has done for you. And what a magnificent God He is. Can't help you. You have to worship, pray, and seek the Lord. Let's do that. And then let's take communion. I know I'm run long. You'll have to forgive me. But this is important. In fact, this is the most important thing you will do today. Hear the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we are in awe. In fact, we read your word and we step back from it and say to ourselves, whoa, what an amazing God we have that reveals Himself to us like this. Father, look around the world. Seek for another deity. There is none that holds a candle to You. None. There is no God who is the great I Am but You. There is no God of covenant love and faithfulness and forgiveness and grace, mercy and justice, and patience and love like you. There is none. And Father, we bow before you in worship. And we pray you would lead us further up and further in toward you. That we might know you and worship you well, even better. Day by day. Well, if I can have those.